want to welcome you to the Someone to Tell a Two podcast today. We are always grateful for every person who joins and who listens, who watches, and who takes part in, in these conversations by hearing them and absorbing them and, and the lessons that can be learned from them. Today is a very, we think, an important conversation. The, the, the rabbi who is with us, Mark Klein, is full of experience and wisdom as, as someone who has worked b- both in the law as, a, as an attorney and now uh, through religion as a rabbi. And he has been involved throughout his, his career in social justice, trying to right what he believes to be the wrongs that um, are in society and that, and that hurt people. And we appreciate hearing his perspectives and knowing about the work he's done. And we also talk about today the, the current conflict that is going on in the Middle East and his perspectives on that. And we hope that everyone who, who listens will listen with, with respect and with understanding as, as Rabbi Mark himself is trying to trying to find a way forward in this conflict that is that is so nuanced and is not necessarily black or white but is he's 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 one of those people who's trying to find a way you know in which in which everyone can come together and that ultimately this conflict can end but it's not just about that conflict but about so many other issues in our lives and and the things that will sometimes keep us apart or rip us apart and we think these conversations are very important to have as we all together can learn uh, to forge and to find and create a better, more peaceful, more caring world. Yeah, I think just uh, also as a kind of a reminder is that we use this mantra all the time at someone to tell it to that we can learn from everyone we meet. And so even if maybe there's something that's brought up in this conversation with Rabbi Mark today that maybe is a bit unsettling or you would like to learn more about, just come into the conversation with an open mind and an open heart and an open spirit that maybe there's something that Rabbi Mark will have to say to you, as he did to us, that is is enlightening and empowering, and we hope it is. So let's just tell you a little bit about Rabbi Mark today. Mark Klein retired his law license to go to rabbinical school. Now, over 30 years later, he serves as interim rabbi at Temple Ohev Shalom in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. Over his career, Mark has served in three previous communities rebuilding congregations and been active in justice and interfaith work locally, regionally, and globally. He feels blessed to bring the legacy gifts his teachers have shared with him into his work in community consulting. Mark's primary focus as rabbi roots in a several thousand-year-old precept found in Perky Avot amongst the earliest rabbinic writings, If I am not for myself, who will be for me? If I am only for myself, what good am I? If not now, when? As he sees it, community building is Torah's primary goal. He believes that working in faith must take care of everyone not just those in our circle. He works to bridge the chasm that alienate people from each other. Mark loves meeting for coffee and getting to know people. We have benefited from Mark's love of coffee and conversation and have had the privilege of growing to know him and he us. So we hope you'll enjoy today's conversation with Mark. Rabbi Mark, 
It is a privilege and a pleasure to welcome you to the Someone to Tell It To podcast today. Thank you. I'm, I'm blessed to be here. Well, we're going to ask you a, a big question that we, that we like to start with everyone in our conversations. Tell us about yourself. That's a loaded question. I don't know how I ended up doing what I'm doing. I've had some incredible teachers that have kind of pushed me along the way or pulled me or drugged me, literally. But I'm, I'm blessed to, to have a loving family. I've been married and widowed and married again, and some people don't find it once, and I've been blessed twice. And I've got a lot to pay forward, so wherever I can serve, that's what I do. And I know that's a weird way to define yourself, but man, the opportunities that it's presented in my world has just been incredible. Well, I've been around the world to teach. The, in 2000, I co-led the March on Columbia, South Carolina with the now late Julian Bond to take the Confederate flag off the state house that was supposed to be up there for one year and was up there for 40 plus years. But to that meeting, my friend and partner, Reverend Leo Woodbury, literally picked me up out of my desk chair. He came in and said, we're going to a planning meeting. And I said, I'm too busy. And he physically lifted me out of my desk chair and brought me to that meeting where I never would have had that. And that's indicative of a lot of the experiences I've had where I got pushed or pulled into something. And I'm just, I'm thankful for it. So I, I could go on with lots of them, but you know, that's, there's, there are episodes in, in life and I want to do whatever I can do to answer the questions that you need me to answer. You know, we know uh, in your bio, you had talked about the loss of your first wife and also your brother. And we'd love to just learn a little bit more about what that was like and how that maybe informs you and shaped you into who you are today. Thanks. I, I've always been taught in both practicing law and then in rabbinical school to appreciate the things that happen to you in life and to remember that None of them are guaranteed us. It's a different thing to live that moment. And so when um, Cindy died, my first wife, mother of my children, um, I stood over her grave. This was in March of 2008. And I really was struggling because now I'm a young widower with children ranging in age, but the youngest of which he was eight. And I wasn't sure what was going to happen. And so I, I had to make a choice. Do I grieve my situation and the fact that I didn't get the rest of the years that you plan on having to retire and, and watch the kids grow and all of that with Cindy? Or am I thankful for the 23 years that I had with her that no one guaranteed me a day of? And, and the moment I asked that question, I realized that the lessons that had been taught to me all those years, they were right. They actually made sense. And you know, there's no turning back. A couple of years later, I lost my brother, who was my absolute best friend in the entire world. And again, I was reminded that people's hands leave ours, but they never leave us. So every day, you know, I talk to my kids, Cindy's there. It's odd because I've remarried, and sometimes Lori will open her mouth and Cindy's voice comes out of it, uh, which she thinks is just really freaky. My brother and I were Green Bay Packer fans, uh, rabid Green Bay Packer fans, even through the lean years. I can't watch a game without David sitting next to me, even now. So, you know, things happen to us, and we don't control 
how they work, but we control what we do with them. And so I made a commitment that despite the, the loss, there were things that I, I needed to learn. When Cindy died, I was 370 pounds. And my first thought was, I don't want my children to lose both parents. So from the ashes of her passing, I have a new lease on life. Not that I wanted that and I should have learned it from a, in a different way, but I had an obligation to do something about it. And because of that, I'm still here and younger at 63 than I was at 48. So that's, that's how you deal with it, is I think, in the most healthy way. And my tradition teaches that the last thing that we say before we leave a cemetery at a funeral are you know, the, the words of the prayer Kaddish, which never mention death. They're actually the prayer for when you study and you close the book and you say, thank you, God, for the opportunity to grow and learn, and now let me apply it. So the mystics taught that when someone passes, the best way to memorialize them is to say, thank you, God, that that teaching tool, that person was part of our lives, and now I have an obligation to take what I learned and go share it, the legacy with the world. So I think it's a, it's a great way to approach the inevitable None of us are going to get out alive. And yet sometimes, too often, we treat it as if it was something personal that happened to us when someone we, we love passes. And yet we know that that's the direction we're all going to head. And the question is, when we go, will there be people that are thankful that we were part of their lives as well? How did you get so wise there to... to, to embrace that way of thinking. I've had great teachers, and I, I say this often, and it's not just a, a nice way of deflecting. I go back to high school, and um, Coach Overton Curtis of Blessed Memory was my track coach. And he dogged me to do everything that I could do, even when I wasn't in the mindset to want to do it. And it informed me way beyond being a shot and discus thrower in high school to the lessons that he taught me about there are no boundaries if you put your mind to doing what you're, you know you need to do. And along the way, I can tell you the people who have done incredible things in my life that have impacted me. And, you know, if you're not allowed to die until you pay it all forward, y'all are stuck with me for a while. <laughs> it's just, so I, I don't think I'm wise. I think I've had great teachers and I'm blessed that I've listened. I just wish I listened more. Rabbi, through your rabbinic work, you actively are involved in peace and pluralism across the United States and Israel and Palestine. You promote race, gender, and sex equality, interfaith cooperation and communication, and work with communities of all sorts of social justice issues. We'd just love for you to talk a little bit more about, in detail, your efforts and your work and what you've learned from it. Many years ago, I coined a phrase, justice is never just us. And I, I figured out that if people have needs, we're not the only ones with those needs. And that most people who act in painful ways are acting out their own pain. Bullying happens when someone's insecure in his or her or their own skin. And we have an opportunity, maybe an obligation, to respond in a way that will help not only us find security, but help them find security as well. Just this morning, I posted something on Facebook, but today is the anniversary of Kristallnacht, the 85th anniversary of the official war on Jews in Nazi Germany. 
And it's easy to condemn those horrors. And at the same time, we have to know that what made Germany so insecure that it felt it needed to take its pain out on an entire population, and Jews weren't the only victims, certainly, of Nazi Germany. And it's not an apology or it's not moral relativity in to, to say those things, but we know that every conflict happens when people are in pain, their own insecurities. So the work I do tries to help people find common ground, help them face their, their issues so that we can help face each other's issues. Every morning in the Jewish liturgical service, there's a prayer that says, I have an obligation to turn my enemy into my friend. Not just stop the bombs from flying and the, the, the vitriol from coming out of my mouth, but to create a relationship of mutual respect. And certainly that's not something that's happening anywhere in the world right now, but it's a great ethos for what's supposed to happen. I don't use the word interfaith. I believe there's a faith, same God, whatever the traditions and I have no idea what that God is. God's never tapped me on the shoulder and said, by the way, Mark, I'm five foot six and I hate corned beef. I don't care what the deli say, you know. But there's a force that I can't explain that controls a universe that I also can't explain. And I believe heart and soul that I somehow participate with that force when I'm doing the work that brings people together. And so that's informed my justice work, my consulting work, how I write, what I teach. And yes, opportunistically, it's landed me in some really cool positions so several years ago. And I'm not sure I was ever supposed to talk about this, except that it got talked about. The government of Norway flew me and a crew of diplomats to Geneva to meet with Iranian diplomats. Under the guise of I was doing two days of instruction on interreligious stuff. And then the third day was devoted to negotiations backdoor, which I found in the newspapers the week later. You learn a lot about other people just because you're open to the experience. And Rabbi Jack Bemperad was the one that said to the crew, send Mark, I'm busy. You know, so again, one of my, my teachers who opened that door. So I try to empower people. And if there's a way that I can uh, help someone pay it forward themselves, I'm going to always be in for that. So I, I've had my share of headlines. I now need other people to, to take that role and, and to create a legacy that they're going to want to leave as well. So that's why I do the work that I do. And my wife will tell you that I work too much. I, I don't know what retirement's going to look like. It's coming in a year and a half, and I'm scared. <laughs> I'm really, because I, I don't know what platform I'll work from at that point. You mentioned the word fear and that conflicts are often uh, caused by fear. How do we help one another to deal with our fears, to address them, to rise above them, to get through them in, in order to help prevent more conflicts or to, in order to help forge, you know, understanding between one another. I mean, well, at the risk of sounding patronizing, you guys get it because it's about someone to talk to. It's about dignifying people. We talk past each other. How often do we say, how are you, when we keep walking? Because it's something to say, but not something that we mean. At 
people are used to being dismissed. And when that's the mindset they enter a, in, within a con uh, conversation, that's all they're going to take out is, I was dismissed and I hope I got heard. And I didn't hear them, by the way, because I was being dismissed. And so when, when we engage with people and start with um, ensuring each other's dignity in a conversation, things change. And a story I know you guys know is the, the, the starfish on the shore. The kid's got thousands of starfish, and he's throwing them in. A man says, you know, what are you doing? I'm saving starfish. A guy looks around. There's thousands. You can't save them all. And he says, well, I saved that one. And so he threw another one in. So grassroots change is the only thing that's ever really made a difference. Margaret Mead said something to the effect of, they don't think a small group of committed people can change the world because, in fact, it's the only thing that ever has. So you get rid of fear when you create a relationship where people can grow trust. And you can't start that relationship with the work. You've got to create the relationship so that you can trust each other to do the work. So it really requires an investment in the human more than even the cause at first because and we live in a world with intersectionality where I'm a victim, you're a victim. I don't know what you're a victim of, but because you're a victim, I'm going to side with you. And that creates all sorts of trauma because now you have people screaming at each other and they don't even know why. But that guy knows why I'm screaming at you. And that's justification enough. It's what's happening right now with the, with the war in the, in the Middle East on both sides. And if you want to get past fear, you have to give someone a sense that they matter. And I'm not always sure that people know that they matter to themselves before they know they matter to you. And I think that's backwards, that's the way it should be. But we live in an age where external validation becomes our path to any sense of healing. I can't be whole unless I know that people care about me. Prayers for healing. We know that the healing process, the physical healing process, is at least 50% emotional, mental. You have to want to get better. So many times people don't know that they want to get better until they find out that people are praying for them. Which, it's a tragedy that that's what it takes. That I don't want to get better because I want to get better, but it took my wife dying, knowing my kids were counting on me, to lose 150 pounds to be healthy. So you've asked a, a huge question, you know. I work, some of my work, I'm, I serve on two rabbinic councils of liberal Zionist boards where egalitarianism in Israel is, is everything. And I serve as an advisor to a Palestinian empowerment organization, Takir. Ali Abu Awad's uh, position, he's the founder, he says, how can we create a Palestinian state so long as Palestinians only think they're victims. Because that's what they've been told by Hamas and by the PLOs, that we're victims of Israel and victims of the world. So his job, as he sees it, is to make people proud of who they are, and then you can form a state. But it takes it, what has never been an external uh, affirmation. Somehow you have to grow the grassroots within the people to say, oh, I can foster a nation. I can support my my family in this, in this role. So somewhat scattered answer to your question, but empowerment is, is the only path. And uh, too often we have to make that experience it externally because we don't have the tools to do it internally.
I'm reminded of a sociologist and researcher that we quote all the time, Dr. Brene Brown. We do too. And one of the things she says in one of her books is that people are hard to hate up close, move in. And I'm just thinking, you know, in the times that we're in right now, what does it mean to just move in? She talks a lot about vulnerability. And we have to be willing to be vulnerable. We have to be willing to go places knowing that they're going to look at us crazy for being there. And we have to be willing to take the couple of pot shots while people aren't sure what to do with us to create that relationship. And that's, you know, she, she talks a lot about uh, this notion that if we can't be vulnerable in meeting people, they'll, they'll never open themselves to us as well. And so it moving in is knowing that you're going to have to swallow something because people's knee-jerk reaction is not going to always be warm. Um, maybe the difference between fear and courage is doing it anyway. Um, and you'll, you know, the old adage, you're never going to score points if you don't take the shot. So I know I'll never fix anything if I don't try to get with people in a place where we can see each other person to person. When I was in South Carolina, my, my partner, Leo Woodbury, I mentioned earlier, and I were working with the Chamber of Commerce, and we created a program every Tuesday. If you dined with someone at, I, had, I think we had eight or nine restaurants in Florence, South Carolina. If you dined with someone from a different ethnicity or culture, you'd get a 15% break off your lunch bill. And the chamber operated as the clearinghouse. If you didn't know anybody different from you, you could call in and they set you up on a lunch date. And some of these conversations that developed were just incredible because people who wanted to get to know somebody different but didn't have the courage, strength, or access in the way they saw the world to do it, all of a sudden were having some of the most profound conversations and, God forbid, creating friendships with each other. So, you know, it, it, it takes that leap of faith. Thank you for listening to the Someone to Tell It To podcast. Wonders Found Thrift Shop is proud to be one of its sponsors. Wonders Found is an all-volunteer-run thrift shop begun to support our mission team as they rebuild homes in disaster areas. We support local missions, people experiencing homelessness, veterans, and children and youth outreaches. We also provide clothing and household items to families displaced by fire or flood. You can learn more at our website, wondersfound.org, or stop in to see what wonders you can find at 7810 Allentown Boulevard, Harrisburg, Pennsylvania. We hope you enjoy the rest of the podcast. In our first module of our training, our six-part listening training, compassionate listening training, module one, we talk about Maslow's hierarchy of needs and how we all have inherent needs. And I think we really here at Someone to Tell to focus our attention on kind of the third portion of that pyramid of, of a sense of belonging and connection. And uh, yeah, I think for us, we found in our listening work over the last 11 years is the need to find what we have in common and to start there. We all have a need to feel as if we belong. We all have a need to feel as if we're, we're loved and accepted and appreciated for who we are and who we've been created to be. And so I think in the times that we're in right now, that is something that we need now more than ever is to 
to start with what we have in common and to look past some of the things that we that do, that do separate us you know i on the one hand i absolutely agree the the only way that we can start a conversation is to find the place where we can hear, actually hear each other unfortunately too many people then take that as the watering down the importance of those places that are different that we don't so i like to think of it as like a, a chef salad has very distinct and diverse tastes and if you withdraw any piece any of that recipe then the salad isn't as wonderful as it is so it's not creating the melting pot where we just ignore all of the differences every program well for four years i served as the interreligious chair for the jewish federation of central new jersey when i was uh, still there in new jersey and every program i ran was subtitled return to human because that, that, that's where we're all in commonality. And I don't care what religion, tradition, orientation, identity, we start with you know, that, that place of humanity. And where we can dignify that, we can also have the conversations of how my humanity plays out in this tradition or my humanity plays out in another way. And then we can really appreciate that there's stuff that we have to learn from each other, that it'll enhance our world. Before I moved up here a year and a half ago, one of the last things I did in New Jersey was help ordain a black Baptist minister in his church. And people look at me as, Rabbi, what are you doing? But Reverend Kerwin Webb wanted me to be part of the holiest day of his career. What an incredible honor. And to help him experience faith in his way, it didn't cost me anything. I didn't have to say, you know, my profess something I didn't believe. But I did have the opportunity to share with his church that his view of ministry and his view of serving God and mine were absolutely in sync. So there's that commonality piece, even while we play it out through different, in different lenses. Mm. <clears throat> you mentioned the current conflict in the Middle East. And this morning in the New York Times, the, the day that we are recording this, the columnist Nicholas Kristof, if you're familiar with him, wrote about, he said something to the effect of he, he's seen a glimmer of hope for that region. He started out, though, by writing how many times, you know, he's been there several times and especially recently, and how he's not seeing a lot of hope. And he's, you know, it's, it's, it's hard, very hard for him, who seems, tends to be a very seemingly positive person, but is just really not sure. But then he said, but yet there, there are glimmers, even when he's prone to despair. And it was about Israeli woman, a Jewish woman who, whose father was murdered by Hamas, with 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 an axe and how horrific that was and the grief that she that she felt that and then there was another story of a Palestinian family whose young daughter was shot by an Israeli soldier and how they they grieve certainly her her young life and the loss of it and what Christoph was writing about is that both in in both cases both these families and family members have decided 
that they want to see the people who are or the murderers as human beings. Want to understand what they're afraid of. Want to know what who they are as people, that they are people and not just an enemy because there just a lo- are a lot of, you know, just people thinking that these people are, are, are not really human and that they believe things that are horrific and, and they, they practice things that are horrific. And these two families are examples of, of like trying to see beyond that and know that that's not necessarily true and that, they're, that we need to approach start with where we are as human beings and then deal with the differences, the conflicts, but build, but it's about, again, building that trust and getting to know one another. And it was just a fascinating story. And I thought it was in a, it was, it was, it was very appropriate that, that it was in the, in the New York times today when we knew we were going to be having this conversation. I don't know if you've read that or you've seen that story today or, or what, what you think about that about the glimmers of hope that are there based on our common humanity. I've not seen that story. I start, though, with if you're willing to put your life on the line on a battlefield, you have to believe there's something worth fighting for. Now, whether it is someone's agenda and their propaganda has infused your brain or whether you really believe that the sanctity of your existence, your existential state requires you to do it. Either way, you as an individual are on that battlefield fighting what you believe for your life or the life of your people. Um, And it's amazing how many countries go into war saying God is on my side. It's really an indictment on God if God really is on both sides, you know. I mentioned Ali Abu Awad, his first foray into this work He was in an Israeli prison. His mother was in an Israeli prison. His brother was shot by an Israeli soldier. And he studied King and Gandhi and started working in nonviolence. And so his settlement, an area in the West Bank, and the settlers' community had been at war for years. And he said, you know, we're going to just destroy each other, and yet we both believe that we have ties to this land. And representatives from the settlement community said, absolutely. So they created a, an organization in Hebrew, Shorashim, it means roots. Everyone has roots in the land. And they created a community at Gush Etzion, which is right at the border between West Bank and, and Israel, where they've done some incredible programming, these glimmers of hope, helping people see past the, this was yours, this is mine, you know, that this is somehow ours, and the situation is ours. There are lots of those glimmers of hope, and they're not new to this cause. But I'll go back to something Golda Meir said, that she could forgive the Palestinians for killing, or the Arabs at the point, the Arab world, for killing our children, but she could never forgive them for making us kill their children. And it is a powerful statement, and that was the mantra through which she's, she's, she lived and, and, and governed. That's gotten lost on, on both sides. And there's a lot of celebration when people win in a war. Even though you really can't win a war any more than you win a hurricane, the fact that you defeated the other side, you've still diminished humanity. I 
part of my post on Kristallnacht on Facebook today, I said that I quoted from a text that's a couple thousand years old, Pirkei Avot, which is the ethics of our ancestors. It's in a rabbinic text and reminds us that you're not allowed to gloat over the failure of your enemy because God's wrath will turn against you if you do so. That there has to be this understanding that anybody who suffers is suffering. And for us to gloat over it is, is an aberration. It's, it's, it's a, what we call the chilul, the greatest of transgressions. Those messages get lost. And so I guess what Mr. Christoph wrote today was that he sees in these stories the real attempt for people to, to see beyond their, their own loss, which is huge. It's a, a family who loses someone because a drunk driver collided with their car, and then they almost adopt the drunk driver, can't bring that person back, but they say this doesn't happen to anybody else again, and this person already is, is going to feel horrific the rest of his life for having caused this accident, but there's still humanity invested. So he points to something I think is, is incredibly necessary. I wish more people felt that way. The easy answer, and this speaks to something we were speaking on informally earlier, you know, the women in leadership in Israel and Palestine, while very partisan, also have, a, have an ear and an eye and a heart to a different path. And there is something about the male bravado that sometimes really just gets in the way. People hate when I say that. But there's a reason in our tradition that women become bat mitzvah at 12 and men become bar mitzvah at 13. There's this reality, of, and it's not stereotypical to say there's something nurturing that we don't have. We've never given birth. We've never had a life grow inside us. And so anytime that we lose someone we love, however deeply invested we are in their lives or they in our lives, they're still a separate from us. But someone who has actually experienced the, the, the life force of growing and then giving birth, there's a bond there that there's nothing that we can ever do to replicate. And I think that's very organic and something that we need to think about. So many years ago, Tzipi Livni was, her, the, her party won the election in Israel, but because she couldn't put together a plurality of vote, Bibi became prime minister again. Her passion was to create peace with the Palestinian world. Bibi's passion was power. And, you know, those are two very different ways of approaching how we govern and how we, we live through the world. I was blessed to hear her speak last week, and that mantra hasn't changed any. That we can't, we can't look for tomorrow without changing how we, we see our, our relative positions today in opposition to each other. And it so I'd love to talk a little bit about forgiveness and how forgiveness comes into this conversation, particularly forgiving our enemies. We're reminded of a woman actually from the state of Pennsylvania here, and you might recognize the name. Her name is Terry Roberts. Terry's son took the lives of several Amish children at a school. And we had heard Terry Roberts on the radio on WITF here locally, our NPR affiliate. And we reached out to her to tell her a little bit about what we do at Someone to Tell To and see if we could be supportive. And at that point in time, she had stage four cancer. And so that's actually why we had initially connected with her to see if she needed any emotional and spiritual support 
Well, it turns out she invites us to her home in Lancaster uh, where this shooting had occurred. And she invites us into her home and they, there's this room that became famous because if you remember the story, shortly after her son had done this horrific act, this Amish community had come into her home and and decided that they were going to build her this sanctuary, this, this extra space as an add-on to her home because she was going to be grieving so extensively as a result of what her son had done. And, and we had the privilege of actually going and sitting with her multiple times in this, in this room. And every time it just still, even to this day, gives us chills thinking about it. And she's spoken on behalf of someone to tell to, and now has since passed as a result of her cancer. But that act of forgiveness is, it's really hard for us to even wrap our minds around what, what transpired that day. Uh, and we're actually, as anybody who listens and, and knows our background, we're both trained pastors and it's still even hard for us to wrap our minds around this topic of forgiveness. And I just wanted to share that as an example of just this profound forgiveness that occurs and how it helps us to rise above these challenges. And uh, I I'd, I'd, would love for you just to kind of circle back to this, this topic of forgiveness for a minute and how it, it relates to what we've been talking about. That's a great story. Forgiveness is not waiting for an apology. Forgiveness is finding a way you're through the pain. The reality is that if someone hurts us, they go on with their lives, and every time we recall the hurt, we abuse ourselves. And we, it would be wonderful if someone who commits a transgression would own up to it and do their what we call teshuva, turn their position to, to blessing. But there's, there's no way that we can ever move forward if we carry grudges. And sometimes that work requires us to really extend ourselves. Sometimes it's not just I'm not going to think about it or I'm going to let it go. But for a community that suffered such as that, to overtly do what they did is the reminder to them that how sacred the human is over and above what sometimes we horrifically do. There are times, though, that that becomes a real challenge. Israel has a right to defend itself, especially from a people who have yet to declare that Israel is legitimate. In the Oslo Accords, the first agreement was to remove the language from the Fatah, the Palestinian Liberation Charter, to that Israel has no right to exist, and that never happened. And if you read the Hamas Charter, it's their, their sole focus is to get rid of Israel. So with the occupation that needs to end for a host of reasons, it's hard when you're looking at people who don't even recognize your legitimacy, who have recreated a history as if all of the Jews moved there because they chose to, as opposed to after World War II, they weren't welcome back in their homes in Europe, and nobody, including the United States, wanted them. And the only place that the UN allowed them to go was to this land which displaced indigenous Palestinians. So just the idea that Jews moved there just to exist, not to usurp, not to colonialize, not to imperialize, but just to exist because it's the only place in the world they could. Um, no one's blaming Europe or the UN for what they did, uh, which is really what needs to happen in the conversation, but that's for a whole nother uh, talk. Um, so right now, to root out Hamas, 
it's horrific what's happening in Gaza. It's absolutely horrific. And yet we're now getting footage where in a Boy Scout camp, there's a munitions cache. Underneath hospitals, there are tunnels with munitions that all of the money that's gone to Hamas hasn't gone to take care of the Palestinian people. It's gone to build tunnels and gain weaponry. And so, yes, how do you get rid of that? You've got to destroy it. And from a military perspective, you may kill 500, but you keep 50,000 from dying because of what you also destroy. But you still killed 500, and there's, you can't wrap your head around that from a humanistic perspective, whatever the military strategy. But if not one more Palestinian dies, at the end, what do the people who evacuated come back to? Their homes are destroyed. And even if Israel were to say, as the United States did after dropping the bombs in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we'll rebuild Japan, for Israel to say, we'll help rebuild Gaza, then they're going to be accused of occupying again. So whatever the humanitarian need to participate in that demonstration of forgiveness, sometimes it becomes real challenging because the people won't have it and won't participate in it. And that's why the glimmer of hope that you spoke of earlier, it's, yes, it's there. And I work in that world and, and I, on both sides of the green line. And at the same time, I see how impossible it is because of the preexistent biases and rhetoric to somehow work through that because those aren't based in the human condition. Those are based in the politics. And, you know, there's, you know what my definition of politics is? Lots of ticks. Politics. Yeah. Okay. And that's what it's devolved to because, you know, there's a bumper sticker I have that under Republicans, man oppresses man. Under Democrats, it's exactly the opposite. Man oppresses man. Okay. Because whoever's in power, it's about power. I don't know the last time I saw a federal election where people actually wanted to serve. And, and, and we, as lemmings, will give it our all to support people who want power. And as if we get to be powerful right along with them for the period of time that they're in power, ignoring the fact that if, you know, there's other people who then get completely lost. Nikki Haley last night said something which I, I really appreciated. She was very open about her position on abortion. And she said, but the people are speaking. And I don't have to agree with what they vote. So she was speaking specifically about what happened in Ohio. I don't like that vote. I don't like that they voted the way that they did. But I respect the fact that that's how Ohio is going to govern because that's what the vote was. Well, you know, I, I appreciated that moment, whatever her real politics are, you know, okay? And it may be all there, and, you know, I'm not casting aspersions. But in that moment, I said, you know... That's an incredibly important answer on this stage in this environment to say, I support that answer even though I don't agree with it. You know, wasn't that what this country was supposed to be built on? Is figuring out how freedom and rights are not unfettered. And I, I may have a right to hit you in the face, but my right to hit you stops at your right not to be hit. And so I can't exercise some of those rights because they violate your rights. 
and somehow the rights to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness have just gotten lost in the I'm powerful and I can do what I want. And that's not just this country, that's right now the problem in the world. So what you guys do, grassroots, helping people see the need to, to hear each other and to be heard and then to listen themselves to other people. If we want to change the world, that's what it's going to take is those people who become voters, those people who become the advocates. Those people are the ones who are going to say, you know, this isn't the world that we're supposed to be living in right now. Thank you for saying that and for and for acknowledging or advocating for the work that we do because we we hope it is making a change that that whether it's one by one just like the starfish you know that person by person there there is an understanding of that there needs to be a different way of the, of us of us relating to one another and that's what we're trying to do so thank you, well, thank I'm, you for I'm, that. I'm blessed that of all the gin joints and all the bars and all the world, you know, <laughs> that you and I got thrown together in leadership Harrisburg. And, and from that has come a relationship that I really, I really cherish what you guys are mm -hmm. doing. Thank you. Same Thank you. Feelings are mutual. You had mentioned Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. a little bit earlier, and we'd just love to read a quote because I know this came up in our conversation when we had lunch together a few weeks ago. But I think this would be such a great way to end our, our time together. And, and he was famous for having said, there comes a point where we need to just stop pulling people out of the river. We need to go upstream and find out where they're falling in. We know this quote is one you adhere to as well. And as we end today, we'd love for you just to expound upon what it means to you. You don't fix a problem by reacting to it. You fix problems before they happen. If you know that there are problems, then you, you go upstream to figure out what the cause is. In the textile industry in Marion, South Carolina, went south literally with NAFTA. It went to, to Mexico and, and South America. And anyway, we knew that was going to devastate the economy in Marion, South Carolina, because all of life in South Carolina revolved around the textile industry. So when that announcement came, many of us got together and created a different economy with job training, bringing the AME churches, brought in doctors because they were doing medical care. We created a, a barter system to keep the economy going where people could exchange services in the farms that would provide the food, et cetera. And while people created a new industry, new ways of living in that small town. So the proactivity kept people from needing to be pulled out of poverty because we didn't allow poverty to happen there to begin with. So for, every, for everything that ails society, if you're paying attention, it, you can see it coming. But so many of us say it's not in my backyard and I'll wait till it's in my backyard. But the, time, the moment that it's in your backyard, it's too late. So there's a difference between charity and justice. Charity is putting band-aids on things. Justice is fixing problems. So if we want to end, if we want to end poverty, then we need to invest in education because the way out of poverty is to help people change the trajectory of their, their path. So there's a group of young African-Americans in town, Capital Rebirth, and great young people who were partnering with it, Temple of Sholem. They grew up here, 
some of them went away and came back and saw what was happening. And so their sole function is to change the way that young people see their futures. So we're sponsoring a Pony League football team, 10 and 11 year olds. And I think we're the only team in the league that does this, but they have study hall on Monday nights and the temple hosts them. And then they watch game film. And I don't remember watching game film as an 11 year old, okay? But they watch game film, they're disciplined. And then the kids all bring their helmets, their football helmets, and they get stickers, not for their performance on the field, but for the A's and B's, because they, they have to bring their reports from their teachers every week. And so you've got these kids who are learning at 10 and 11 year old, scholar athlete, not just the athletics on the field. And by the way, they're playing in the Super Bowl this Sunday. Since we started doing this, they've been eight and and they're playing in the Super Bowl. So it, you fix the problem on, on the front end because it's not, before it's really a problem. And then you don't have to worry about the reclamation afterwards. I'll close with an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. You know, it's said a long time ago. My God, it's true. So, but thank you both. Rabbi Mark, thank you for being with us today, for sharing your wisdom, your experiences, your, your understandings about human nature and and, and the way we can create a better, a better world, better relationships with one another. And we need, we need that wisdom very much. I appreciate that. I'm blessed that Temple of Shalom brought me to this community so I can, I can serve and be relevant. They really wanted to transform as a congregation and figure out how to impact the community. And I've been blessed with incredible partners at the synagogue that are doing some great outreach to folks. So. Let's hope that more and more people join in in this work. We hope that today's conversation was one that was thought-provoking and enlightening for you. It certainly was for us, and we're grateful for, for those who are willing just to share from their heart and from their spirit what they have experienced, what they believe, in order to help this world be a better place. And we want to thank you for joining us. We thank uh, Rabbi Mark for joining us and for sharing what he did in order to help, help us all to just, to just think more, to reflect more, and to understand more about one another. I'll just add again as a reminder for our listening community, if you could just share this episode with five people in your community it just helps expand our reach significantly so and again this conversation is just so meaningful and beneficial especially in the times that we find ourselves in currently so if you want to go to our website to learn more about someone to tell you's work just go to someone to tell it to you.org and until we listen again <laughs>